Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nixetner Geology Podcast, Episode 40, The Demise of the Farallon Plate. Thanks for listening. We've had a Farallon Plate episode, if you recall. We had actually a couple of episodes a while back when we were in our Geology 101 lecture series, earlier in this podcast series, talking about the Farallon Plate, talking about bringing exotic terrains to build the state of Washington and really the entire Pacific Northwest over the last 200 million years. Uh, This is an episode of the podcast where I'm sharing with you some new stuff that I've been working on. And I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, You may be aware that I create lectures that are brand new each year. And I record them for YouTube, and I've been doing this for about 10 years now, so there's quite a few of these lectures you can find. I I call the series the Downtown Geology Lectures because I live in a conservative area, and many were interested in geology, but they didn't want to come to the campus. They didn't want to set foot on the campus of Central Washington University because that's the enemy. We'll just leave that one alone. Anyway, that was, uh, so we found a neutral site, which was downtown Ellensburg, like a few blocks from campus, basically. And I started doing those lectures in an old rock and roll roll hall uh, called Raw Space. It no longer exists. It was basically a stage and some crappy lighting. So if you find some of those earliest downtown lectures, you, can, you can't even read the whiteboard I was using. And that's when I started using chalkboards uh, for cameras. And then that moved to a place called the Hal Home Center, which was connected to the uh, city library. And that worked out for quite a while, but we outgrew that. And last year, for the first time, I started using the Morgan Middle School Auditorium, which doesn't sound that impressive, but Actually, uh, it's a structure that was built 100 years ago, beautiful old auditorium, and thanks to a recent school bond, uh, much of that old building was restored, including the auditorium, and so it's a state-of-the-art facility and has more than 500 seats, so we can, we can uh, have plenty of room for the folks who come. And in previous uh, downtown lectures. I was not promoting those lectures very much because uh, there were limited chairs. But uh, it's working nicely down there at the Morgan Auditorium. And so I have four brand new lectures lined up for this April. That's April of 2012. Uh, four Wednesdays in a row. Wednesdays at seven o'clock. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you remember a while back talking about Jay Harlan Bretts. I had three episodes back to back to back talking about what I was learning about Brett's. And so one of those new downtown lectures this spring will be on Brett's. It's basically the stuff I shared with you. There's another one commemorating the 40th anniversary of St. Helens and looking at other recent Cascade eruptions. I kind of have that one together. It needs polish, though. Uh, A third of the lectures, this is not the order, by the way, a third of the lectures is uh, something I just decided on recently. And I think I'll save that for another podcast episode, but it involves Native Americans in the area and going back and forth between what we know from geological scientific work. I'm choosing my words carefully now. Going back and forth between what we know geologically from our scientific approaches in central Washington 
with uh, some Native American stories and looking at potential overlap between those two worlds. Uh, that's coming. Uh, I'll save that for another day. But the the new stuff I'm working on right now and have been for the last couple of weeks, and it's kind of how I operate. I kind of get in a in a zone, and I just kind of do nothing but working on a new lecture. And it's a lot of fun if if there's if there's juice there. Um, and new data to work with, and uh, researchers to email with, etc. And all of that fits the bill for this uh, dem- demise of the Farallon plate. So um, let me just basically give you the rundown of the lecture and give you the high points of what I'm excited about, and then, I guess, uh, you'll be able to watch the full lecture once it's um, recorded in April. So, to start with, oh, let's see, actually, I typed out a little outline uh, as I was emailing somebody else. Yeah, here. So, to start with, the idea is, okay, well, uh, we know about the Farallon plate in geology. You might not know about it, but let me remind you if you've vaguely heard of it. There used to be a huge ocean plate called the Farallon plate. It was underneath the waves of the Pacific Ocean. And that Farallon plate, uh, as I've taught it for many, many, many years, is uh, this conveyor belt, this oceanic floor conveyor belt, uh, moving to the east, essentially, and subducting or diving beneath the west coast of North America. And if it was just simply a subduction of the Farallon plate story, all we'd have would be a volcanic arc. In other words, a line of volcanoes along the coast, the west coast of North America, and if we had nothing but 200 million years of subduction of a, of a Farallon plate, then we'd have 200 million years worth of volcanism along the west coast of North America from Alaska down to Mexico. End of story. Well, um, even in 101 land, I address the fact that it's not that simple. Uh, instead, the Farallon plate was actually bringing things to us, bringing pieces of land. And... Um, each of those pieces of land that were made elsewhere, we call exotic terrains. This is review, by the way, if you if you heard that episode uh, earlier. Uh, bringing exotic terrains by the Farallon plate motion, uh, when you subduct the Farallon plate, you add an exotic terrain. You basically gift a piece of real estate to North America, and then suddenly the coastline becomes at a different spot. And you repeat the process, bring in another big piece of land, bring in, bring in another exotic terrain. You continue to add to the acreage of North America. And cartoonishly, that's how the states of Washington, Oregon, and California primarily were created. All of British Columbia, Alaska, nothing but exotic terrains. And to this point in my career, which is a long time, right? I've been teaching for 30 years. I've been teaching pretty much what I just told you for 30 years. It's been a quite a simple story. Well, I'm about to change the way I teach this because of this exciting new data. Before we get to the new exciting new data, let me add one more concept to what we just said. For simplicity, let's say each time we begin to subduct the Farallon, let me say that differently. Where the Farallon plate begins to subduct offshore, there's an oceanic trench. And then let's use a number, 150 miles. How about that? 
let's use 150 miles as a set distance between the oceanic trench where the subduction begins offshore and where these volcanoes are popping up above the magmatic zone where the subducting plate is generating melt at the base of the crust. All I'm trying to say so far is that uh, if we visualize subduction along the west coast of North America, 150 miles east or inland of that trench on land, there's going to be a line of volcanoes. We call it a volcanic arc, typically stratovolcanoes, cone-shaped volcanoes made out of andesites in the most basic sense. So, and again, I think I've mentioned this before, we're still kind of reviewing. Each time we add a major terrain, we're going to jump the position of the trench. In other words, we're going to suddenly have a new coastline further to the west. Therefore, we're suddenly going to make a new trench x number of miles to the west. Therefore, our volcanic arc that was active is going to die, and a new volcanic arc is going to set up uh, to the west because we have that set distance of 150 miles between the oceanic trench and the arc. You got it? Bring in a terrain, jump the trench west, therefore you jump the volcanic arc to the west. And so if you really dig down and look carefully at the evidence of where these old volcanic arcs used to be, if you follow what I just said, shouldn't we have a whole bunch of magmas in one area of a set age? And then as we jump to the west, shouldn't we find a, a whole nother batch of magmas, of course, that are dead now, basically, so there's granites and old volcanics. Shouldn't we find a, a, another batch of magmas that are uh, abruptly younger? And then if we continue to jump west through the Pacific Northwest, shouldn't we find even younger magmas? In other words, if that model is true, that we bring in a terrain and we jump the trench to the west, shouldn't we also then be jumping our blobs of magma abruptly, kind of spasmodically jumping from, from one area to the next? I have a feeling I've lost some of you already. Not a good sign, but I'm going to soldier on. Hopefully you will too. Don't hit that pause button. or re well, Yeah, go ahead. You can hit the rewind button if you want, if you're really into this. If not, you're waiting for the good stuff and it's about to come. Hang on now. Okay, so we should have, if you follow my logic, spasmodic jumping westward of granites, let's say, that are getting younger and younger as we jump each time we add a terrain. Here's the good stuff. We now have good ways to get very accurate dates on the granites and volcanic rocks of eastern Washington. And those guys that are collecting those granites, let's just say granites, collecting those granites in different locations in eastern Washington are also running the chemistry on those granites and looking at very tiny isotopic traces of things and saying something about the depth at which the magma is coming from and what kind of tectonic situation the magmas are coming from. Here's the big reveal. There is no spasmodic jumping from arc magmatism in one place to newer arc magmatism to the west, and even newer 
arc magmatism to the west yet. Instead, there's a gradual trend of ages going from northeast Washington to southwest Washington. I'll just continue on. This is awkward now, but I'll just try anyway. If you look carefully at rocks of a certain age, from this age when we're actually looking at magmas, oh shit, how am I going to do this? Hang on, hang on. Is that a bad word? I apologize. Um, let me try it this way. Uh, there's a guy named Jeff Tepper, T-E-P-P-E-R. He's been uh, teaching for many years now at University of Puget Sound. And he's had very bright geology majors under his supervision. And for an undergraduate thesis, uh, the process would be go over to eastern Washington, because he's in Tacoma, go over to eastern Washington, find a plutonic rock, let's say, a granite, or a series of volcanic rocks, maybe there's some rhyolites or some andesites, in eastern Washington that haven't been carefully dated very much and also haven't been run for chemistry very much. And over the years, Jeff has brought a number of undergrads over to uh, northeastern Washington and central Washington to repeat this process, get accurate uranium lead dates on these plutons and volcanic rocks, and see if there's some sort of pattern to the ages and the chemistries of those plutons. Okay, back to me trying to say what Jeff has found with his students. In northern Washington, we got to get to northern Washington now, because southern Washington has all these Columbia River basalt, flood basalts that you might recall. It's basically a giant cow pie that's covered all the good stuff. And if you don't know what a cow pie is, which I'm starting to realize is the case, because many of us don't have farming backgrounds anymore, uh, you might have to Google cow pie. It's not pleasant. But I like it as an analogy for the flood basalts of eastern Washington because they, they were <laughs> brown and runny. Oh, God, stop. Okay. So we got to get north of the cow pie. And we're basically north of Spokane. We're north of Grand Coulee Dam. We're north of Wenatchee, Washington. And then we're approaching the Cascades. That's the country we're talking about. An area that I know very little about, by the way. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. Uh, my knowledge runs out pretty quickly once we get into the Okanagan Highlands and some of these areas straight north of Spokane and certainly into the panhandle of Idaho. I'm a babbling idiot when it comes to that area, and I'm hoping to change that. And this this new lecture is kind of getting me seriously interested in the, in the Okanagan and even over into B.C. It's not really that far away from Ellensburg when you really sit down and think about it. Okay, so... Tepper sampled all these igneous rocks, older than the cow pie, pretty much between the ages of 52 million years ago and 44 million years ago. 52 to 44 million years ago. Now, if you're a, an excellent geology student of the Pacific Northwest, you know a couple of things. By 52 million years ago, we pretty much have most of Washington built from earlier exotic terrains some of them coming up from Mexico, huh? 
That's a whole other thing. Let's leave that alone now. We're not getting into that. That's too complicated for us right now. The point is, most of the terrains are here except for the last one. The last terrain to come in has not come in yet. That's Siletia, also a topic we've talked about. Siletia, a huge basaltic shield volcano off the shore of Northern California, is eventually going to be moved by the Farallon Plate and added to western Washington and western Oregon. So what I'm saying is that these granites and volcanics of northeastern Washington between 52 and 44 million years ago show a pattern, a beautiful pattern. And the pattern is, I'll just say granites, the granites get younger as you go from northeastern Washington towards Ellensburg. Let's just say it that way, towards the center of the universe, Ellensburg, Washington. I had no idea this was the case. In fact, I just expected that all those granites of eastern Washington of a particular age would show that spasmodic jumping west as we continue to bring the terrains in. That may be a pattern with some of the oldest plutons or the oldest granites, but in the case of this time window, 52 to 44 million years ago during the Eocene, that's not what we see. It gets better than that, though. Those plutons, those granites, those volcanics uh, do not have a volcanic arc signature. Now, I need to learn more about this from Jeff and others, but you can look at the isotopes in these rocks and say something about the depth and the kind of mechanism for generating the magmas. And there's certain telltale signs of arc magmas, meaning you can go to the Cascades today. The Cascades are our current volcanic arc, right? Mount St. Helens, Mount Rainier, blah, blah, blah. That whole north-south trend are the Cascades. And if you sample those rocks, you've got a lot of different chemistries, by the way, a lot of different kinds of rocks. It's not all just andesites and diorites. But the point is, isotopically, that's an arc signature, meaning we're, we're generating the magmas from a subduction zone probably the Farallon Plate. But this sweep of magmas getting younger from northeast Washington into central Washington, according to Jeff and others, are saying this is not an arc story. We're getting volcanoes, we're getting magmas, but not from a simple arc. So we're not just jumping the trench. We're not just jumping the arc west. We're doing something more gradual, sweeping across Washington from northeast to southwest, and it's not even an arc thing. So what the hell's going on? I'll make it brief. Jeff has now worked up, Jeff Tepper has now worked up with Ken Clark, his colleague there at UPS, Mike Eddy, who now is at Purdue, but was working as a postdoc out here in the northwest doing some amazing work. Those guys have worked up this, this model of it's not just the Farallon Plate that is diving beneath the Pacific Northwest. There's a different oceanic plate also at play called the Kula Plate, K-U-L-A. And really the headline of this whole episode, maybe that's what I'll call this thing, it's not just a subducting plate beneath the Pacific Northwest, it's a subducting submarine ridge. 
Now, let's pause for dramatic effect and think back to our Geology 101 plate tectonics lectures. We know there are places in the Pacific, excuse me, we know there are places in the world where the ocean floor is not flat, but there's a big old fat mountain range underneath the water. And that mountain range, like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge or the East Pacific Rise, are made out of basalt. And from studying the ages of the basalt patterns on the ocean floors, we know that those submarine ridges are what we call spreading centers, seafloor spreading centers, places where ocean crust is created and tectonic plates are being sent away in both directions from that underwater mountain range. We know today there's something called the Juan de Fuca Ridge, which is off the shore of Seattle and Corvallis, Oregon, let's say. Corvallis is not on the coast, but you know what I mean. I said Corvallis because they, they do a bunch of oceanography from that campus, but it's not the coast. All right, good. We do have a Juan de Fuca Ridge out there today, but there was a much longer, more impressive spreading ridge under the water of the Pacific Ocean back during this time between 55 and 40 between 55 and 40 million years ago you can even go back earlier than that so if you feel like going to my YouTube channel it sounds like I'm plugging it and making money I'm not but I, I'm just adding some visuals if you really are into this podcast so in the last week or so maybe week and a half I've posted a couple things on that YouTube channel Two of them are potential uh, animations that a friend of mine uh, might be making. Uh, her name is Jenda Johnson, and she has created some amazing animations over the years. She's a self-taught animator. She's a geologist by trade, uh, but uh, for reasons I don't know, got totally into this animation thing and has done some amazing work. If you want to see all of Jenda Johnson's animations online, uh, you can go to IRIS, capital I, capital R, capital I, capital S, IRIS. Uh, they've got a YouTube channel. Most of Jenda's animations are tied to earthquakes and seismicity, but she's branched out to these other kinds of things as well. She has an animation, maybe a couple years old, that's just a masterpiece, I think written by uh, Anita Grunder at, at Oregon State, Corvallis, not at the coast, um, talking about the subduction of the Farallon Plate and uh, the accretion of Silesia and all sorts of volcanic patterns in Oregon that are tied to that, the high lava plains, etc. Well, what I'm trying to talk about is kind of the effect of that submarine ridge being subducted beneath North America and what kind of um, results will appear on land. So I've shared with you a little bit of the data. The data is brand new dates and brand new chemistries on a bunch of granites and volcanics in eastern Washington of the right age. And then coming up with a tectonic model to explain that. And it's very difficult with words. It's also difficult because I don't have it totally visualized yet, if I have to be totally honest with you right now. It's early February. I got a couple months before I need to get my shit together. Whoops, said it again. If you subduct a spreading ridge, and if you don't snuff that spreading ridge out, if you, in other words, if there's still hot mantle material coming up to the surface, 
You're going to create magmas, but not in a trench situation, not in a subduction situation. You're kind of doing the opposite, actually. Just thought of this right now. If we're, if we're having a, a spreading ridge, which is a divergent plate boundary, disappear beneath North America, we're creating magmas from divergence as opposed to creating magmas by convergence. Interesting thought. Well done. I'm now talking to myself and complimenting myself. This is nauseating. I'm in a room by myself and I'm complimenting myself. I have deep personal problems. Apparently. So if you subduct a spreading ridge, you can have this migrating curtain of magma from the northeast to the southwest. And you're like, I don't think I see how that's going to work. Well, how can I do it? Um, there's a window. Basically, we're subducting a spreading ridge, so therefore, as we spread, if we subduct more and more of the spreading ridge, we're going to create more and more of a gap between the Kula plate to the north and the Farallon plate to the south. Best way I can say it is, instead of subducting a plate, we're subducting a gap, <laughs> if that makes any sense to you. And the gap is important because it allows this deeper mantle-generated magmas and apparently the hot mantle is uh, coming up against the basal parts of the crust. The crust is therefore being melted, kind of triggered by that mantle material. But we've got the gap beneath Washington, almost like a hole in the Farallon plate, but that's too simple just to say a hole in the Farallon plate, even though there were plenty of popular articles this past summer where the research was kind of bastardized into that. Let's not go there. But we're getting some of this mantle-generated, magma-generated... Oh, shit. Hang on. We're not sending subduction-related magmas to the surface in northern Washington. We're sending magmas coming to the surface in northern Washington from a deeper source coming up through this gap. Best I can do for you at the moment. And we migrate that stuff. In other words, the magmas get younger and younger as North America drifts over this thing. All right. A couple of final thoughts related to that. There's also some new data coming in from the tomography world. Tomography, T-O-M-O-graphy which is basically doing a CAT scan of deep levels underneath continents and having the technology now to say something meaningful about what's down there. You may have heard of this as well. There's been a lot of excitement recently because for the first time, in fact, there's a, there's a, a website called Atlas of the Underworld. Somebody's got some good style and pizzazz with naming things. The Atlas of the Underworld. I love it. And if you go there, you can see all these reds and blues on these graphs. Sorry, wrong term. You've got these images, and they truly are images. We're not drilling down that deep into the earth. But the blues and the reds are, are, are showing us data. I have no idea how they come up with the data, by the way. I should, I don't are showing us essentially 
pieces of ocean plate that have subducted but have not disappeared. 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, you're taught, okay, you subduct a piece of the ocean floor, it eventually just kind of assimilates back into the asthenosphere at depth, and, and you just kind of lose the trace of that thing altogether. Not true, apparently. This new tomography information says beneath Idaho, essentially, there's a big slab of an old oceanic plate that subducted beneath North America and is still there. Tepper calls it a curtain. It's just hanging like a curtain in a living room. This old, dead piece of the ocean floor that has not melted, has not gone away, and it's hanging there. And so the question is, is that the Farallon plate? Up until about three days ago, I thought it was. The Demise of the Farallon Plate. I guess that's the title of the podcast episode. Like, it's gone, but not totally gone. Well, I've been emailing a little bit with Tepper. He's got a day job. You know, he's working with students and running a department, etc. But uh, we've had a little bit of back and forth. And he said uh, politely, um, I think if you look carefully at that, Nick, you're going to realize that's the Kula Plate that's hanging there. K-U-L-A, the Kula Plate and not the Farallon Plate. So that's also on my YouTube channel, not my conversation with Jeff, but another animation idea. I, I forgot to follow through on that. So the Jenda Johnson animations are wonderful. She coincidentally recently uh, uh, sent me an email and, and offered to um, create an animation if I had a need. And I said, matter of fact, I do have a need, Jenda. A need for speed. Where's the laugh track button on this thing? Can't find it. Totally dorky. So on my YouTube channel, there's two animation ideas where I basically draw on some pieces of paper at the kitchen table, record it, send it to Agenda publicly. I don't know if she's okay with that. And basically, one of them is talking about what I opened with you this the, today on this episode, trying to talk about jumping the trench and therefore jumping the ark. I think she's working on that one right now, uh, if she likes what she's kind of putting together. But the other one is this Kula plate, the ridge between the Kula plate and the Farallon plate long ago offshore. And last thing there is that the animation, if she's interested in doing that one, I'm not sure she is, but if she is, if you have a drifting North American plate over this spreading ridge, the geometries are such that this spreading ridge is going to intersect the coast of North America, originally down in Mexico, let's say 100 million years ago, but as we continue to drift North America to the west and encroach over this spreading ridge underwater, that ridge is going to start working its way up the coast. In other words, the ridge is originally subducting beneath Mexico, then it's subducting beneath L.A. 80 million years ago, then it's subducting beneath, you guessed it, the Pacific Northwest 55 million years ago, then it subducts, the, sub, the uh, ocean ridge is slipping beneath North America up in B.C. by, I guess, 45 million years ago. And then for reasons I don't totally understand, the Kula Plate goes away. Is somehow uh, incorporated by the Pacific Plate. 
I need to think about this. There's also something called the resurrection plate. I don't get it. There's a couple others that are on some people's maps, but not others. Who are these people? They're researchers. What are they trying to do? They're taking all this information along the coast of North America, and go, they're trying to go back in time and reconstruct what ocean plates must have looked like at certain times, even if the ocean plate's totally gone. It seems impossible. But if you're clever and bright and have enough time and energy, you can put things like this together. You know what I try to do. I try to take new research, kind of polish up a new idea, Take an old idea and polish it and, and adjust the old idea to fit the new data and have it plug into something local. And that's how I'll finish this episode. If I can do this properly with Jenda's animation or animations, with Mike Eddy, who I haven't even talked about really, and Jeff Tepper's work, I can eventually take landmarks like Mount Spokane, the granite of Grand Coulee Dam, Saddle Rock and Castle Rock above Wenatchee, Ribbon Cliffs south of Chelan, north of Wenatchee, Liberty Gold north of Ellensburg, Ellensburg Blue Agates, and Hurricane Ridge Road on the Olympic Peninsula. I can take all those places and put them into one significant story involving subducting this ocean ridge underneath the Pacific Northwest using Tepper and Eddy's new dates and new chemistries. It's an ambitious lecture in the sense that it takes a lot of um, three-dimensional thinking, uh, but these guys have done most of the work. It's just up to me to try to get it into a, uh, a package that will work for the broad audience. Pretty excited about it. We'll see how long the excitement lasts. And in the case of this episode, I hope you're able to follow some of that. The visuals are the key to the whole thing. And so um, was there something else on the YouTube channel related to this? I think there was. What was it? He says to himself. Oh, you know, I've got some other attempts at animation from Ray Wells, who's the godfather of the Celestia story. Um... Another guy, I can't think of his name at the moment. Um, but I, I've been trying to communicate with Jenda and say, things are ripe for you, Jenda, to come in and make this sing. These earlier animation attempts are quite crude um, by folks who are not really uh, professional animators. So, yes, was this a Farallon plate lecture? But to be honest with you, I wonder if this is more a Kula plate story than a Farallon plate story. And I have to say it, uh, if I can get this Kula, Farallon, Spreading Ridge, subduction story figured out, and the timing of it and the geometries of it figured out, I think that might get me more excited about going back to the Baja BC story, where we're taking pieces of crust from Mexico and getting them all the way here in the Pacific Northwest. That's possible with that Kula plate being the magic carpet ride. And I think this can all work together, and we can revisit that story at some point. But for now, I think that's, we'll call it good. With the demise of the Farallon pla Plate, <laughs> demise of the Farallon Plate, a.k.a., or no, uh, also the Kula Plate, also the Farallon Kula Spreading Ridge, also, ah, screw it, you got it.
Thanks for listening. Thanks for making it to the end. I, I oh, By the way, I've always wondered how, when people start clicking these things off, if, if they make it, you know, 10 minutes. I think there's analytics I can look up, but I'm, I'm not that interested, I guess. I'm always curious how long people stick around. I'm always a guy who goes, do you ever go to a movie and just stay through the credits? I always drive my family nuts. I want to stay till the end of the credits. So I wonder how many, how long people stay with these podcast episodes. To test that, I forget which episode it was, but I sang <laughs> into this microphone at the end of one of the episodes. And uh, just as a test to see if anybody heard it. I haven't heard from one person yet, so I guess the answer is no. People don't stick to the end, which means nobody's listening to this. Goodbye. <laughs>